The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. All right, last week in our study, we were looking at John chapter 8 as Jesus declares that He's the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the chapter ends with them uh, picking up stones to actually, they want to kill Jesus because he said, before Abraham was, I am. That he's saying he's been around much longer than Abraham, and they can't fathom that, that Jesus is declaring that he's God. And so they picked up stones, and, they, and Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Well, this next story is Jesus is again going to say he's the light of the world, and he's going to show us as the light of the world what he's come to do, and that's to deliver us from our spiritual blindness. So the story goes like this. I'll just quickly outline it, and then we're going to read it together. Uh, But the first um, three verses are telling us uh, the problem, Uh, really the first two verses. We've got the problem And then we go into the solution, Jesus is going to heal this man. The pity and power of Jesus is really what you're seeing in verses 3 to 7. And then you have the probe, which is really, I was looking for a P for investigation, because there's there's a five-fold investigation that ensues as to how this man that was born blind could be healed. And the rest of the chapter is this unfolding probe, uh, and the it's going to go back and forth, and the blind man's going to be interviewed twice. His parents are going to be interviewed. The neighbors are the ones who start this, and the Pharisees are trying to figure this out. And then the last interview is Jesus himself is going to interview the blind man. So let's follow along in this incredible story from John chapter 9. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent us, who, who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. So they asked him, "Then, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered that the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. 
So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man's a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I to- I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You're, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. Now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now as we consider this portion of your word, open our eyes. There's much spiritual blindness. Remove the cataracts and open our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, take the loaves and fishes of, of preparation, Lord, and use them for your purposes. Multiply and feed the flock. We ask in your name. Amen. Great story. We, we love stories because these stories tell us the greatness of our God. And this is a true story. And as we start out with, we have this problem in verse 1 and 2. And it's very similar to the problems that we have today. A man is born blind, there is suffering, there's a physical handicap, and people want to know, who's to blame? Whose fault is it? And sometimes our, our theology is often like in the little songs that we sing, even some of the nursery rhymes. Let me just give you a couple, and you tell me the theology. Little Jack Horner sat in a corner eating his Christmas pie. He put in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, what a good boy am I? Or how about from the sound of music, 
we're, uh, there's a song in there where uh, I think it's Julie Andrews is singing, uh, for here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should. Um, so somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Or more familiar, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty. Naughty and nice, Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness' sake. So all three of these songs or nursery rhymes have a worldview or a gospel of good works. If you do good, God will bless you. If you pull out a plum, it must be because you were a good boy. If you find love and that love of your life, I must have done something good when I was a child or growing up. And Santa is coming to town to give good gifts, not to those who are naughty, but to those who are nice. Right? Well, this worldview is, is really ancient. It goes all the way back to, you could say, Cain and Abel. Cain thought he deserved more for his good offering that he thought he was bringing to God. Here we see the disciples have an implicit worldview that if you're good, God will bless you. And if something bad has happened to you, then the reverse must also be true. Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something bad. The disciples want to know who to blame for the problem of this man being more blind. Who messed up? This man or his parents? Was the problem his environment, his upbringing, the culture around him, or the problem of his parents paying for their sins, and it's now resulting in their sins or reaping consequences on the children? And let me tell you, parents often go here when something bad happens to one of their children. I must have done something wrong. I must be the problem. It was me. I deserve this. Jesus brings a correction to that, does he not? He wants to make it clear, it's neither. It was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So be careful making a one-to-one correlation between suffering and sin. If we do, we'll be tripped up. I was reminded this week as... uh, Chris Kinsinger was telling me about his professor at Wheaton College, his science professor, who boiled down sermons and summed them up this way, that basically every, every sermon comes down to either God is good or Johnny be good, which, which is, you know, the idea is either moralism or the gospel. And we're either going to sing one of two tunes, either God is so good or Johnny be good, and we're either going to try harder, do better, or we're going to realize that we're all at the mercy of God. But what we see Jesus doing here is we see the pity and the power of Jesus. And you have to wonder, why is he making mud? Why is he putting this mud on his eyes? I mean, isn't that going to make him more blind um, by putting, you know, mud and saliva over his eyes? And um, part of me is not really sure why he does this with several of his miracles, 
But I do think that he's reminding us that he's the creator of the universe. And just as the beginning of the Gospel of John made it clear to us that all things were made through him, and without him nothing was, has been made that has been made, and that in him was the light of life, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or understood it. And he's bringing us back to how did the creation begin? How did man begin? We were dust, and God created us out of dust. And here Jesus is taking, as John Calvin says, just as man was first made of clay, so Christ uses clay in restoring his eyes to show that he had the same power over this blind man so that all would know the creator's right in front of you. And Jesus, one of the most understated verses of the Bible, it just says in verse 7 at the end, so he went and washed and came back seeing. Huh. <laughs> like, it just tells you he went and washed, came back seeing. It's a stupendous miracle, and he's come back seeing. Well, that begins the probe. And the probe, we have the neighbors, verses 8 to 12. They're pretty undecided on what has happened. Um, then we have the the first interview, verses 13 to 7, 17, and then we have 18 to 23, which is the interrogation of the parents. Then we have the second probe of the blind man, 23 to 34, and then lastly, Jesus has the final word. Now, what you see here, I think, are two progressions. One is that you're going to see this blind man uh, gain his sight and it's a bigger picture of our condition. And Jesus is using him for, for us to see that, it, isn't it interesting that in this story, one man starts off this chapter in a terrible condition. One man is in a terrible predicament. He cannot see. But by the end of the chapter, what you realize is there's only one man that's in an incredible position because there's only one man who sees. And he worships, proskuneo, it's the worship word. He, he gives worship to Jesus. Now, you just have to understand how profound that is. I mean, this is written to a, a Jewish audience in the Jewish people understood the first commandment and the second commandment. They understood that you have no gods before me. And here we have him bowing and worshiping Jesus because he's saying, you're Yahweh, you're, you're the king, you're, you're, you're God. He's the only one who gets it. And so the rest of the people in the story are either not understanding, as we see from the neighbors, they're, they're, they're more that the ideas that they're, they're, they're quizzing, they're, undec they're undecided, they're not sure. There's, there's, they're going back and forth, you know, then we get to the next, so they bring them to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, what we start to see is a progression in willful decision and willful determination not to know that they are hardening themselves against uh, being able to see the truth. And what we see is that they're becoming darker and hardened and more blind as the story goes on. So just as the blind man moves in a progressive revelation from uh, being totally blind 
but even his understanding of Jesus is going to completely change as the chapter goes on. And the Pharisees go the other direction. Let's just, let's just take a look. I mean, how does it begin? I mean, this man, this blind man is healed, and then they, the neighbors want to ask him in the first interview, how did this happen? And first of all, I used to tell him, I'm the man. No, it really was me. I'm the man. I'm the man. And then he says, um, then they want to know, well, then how were your eyes opened? And now he gives his theology, verse 11. Here's his theology. The man called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes, and said, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my, my sight. That's where he starts. His theology is just, he's a man called Jesus, made mud, and healed me. Okay. Second interview. Now they ask him, like they put the screws to him again. The Pharisees now bring it to him, and, and they're already set in their determination that it, it can't be that this man is from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. And it's clear that this guy is a Sabbath breaker. And we'll come back to that in a minute when we look at the, the hardening of the, of the Pharisees. But they ask him, um, so what do you say about the blind man? Verse 17. What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? Now his theology changes a little bit. He's starting to just, a little bit of light starting to crack in. He's starting to think about this. He's a prophet. He's not just a man, he's a prophet. Okay, so now we, we, we go to the parents, and the parents are pretty clear, man. They are willing to throw their son under the bus. I mean, they are not going to stand out for their parents, man. Sorry, man. He is, you know, there's certain things we know we know, but there are certain things we don't know and we don't know. We, we know that, that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know who healed him and, and how it happened. Ask him. He's of age. Keep us out of it. We don't want to know nothing. And sadly, these parents have a problem called fear. They feared these authorities that would kick them out of the synagogue. They feared their good reputation, and they liked their their place in the pew. And so they were not about to, to make a stand, stand for their son. They, they're not willing to, they're willing to throw him out. And so they bring him in again the second time, and then they confront him the second again, and they want to know, you know, tell us now. And so now his theology is changing a little more. Um, we see in verse 34, now he says, wait a minute. If this man, there's verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So clearly he knows this man has been sent from God. His theology is growing. And then they, they cast him out. They cast him out of there. And then we have this wonderful verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, Jesus seeks and saves the lost. And he asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus says, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And then one of the greatest statements in the Gospel of John is the theology in a nutshell. Does your belief lead to worship? Because you're not really a Christian unless you worship Jesus. That's what makes Christians distinct. 
is we don't say Jesus is a good person and yeah, Muhammad was good and this religion's good, this person's good. That, it, it's, it's exclusive. I believe you're the one. You're the one who, who, who saves, you're the one who created, you're the one who redeems. I believe, and he worships him. Do you see what has happened to this blind man? He went from this man to saying now he's a prophet, to he's one sent from God, till he calls him Lord and worships him. He's now fully in the light. He's no longer in the darkness. He sees who the light of the world is. But it was a progressive revelation. And often that's the case in our story of our testimony. It's like, how did you become a believer? And it was, some people have this wonderful moment like the Apostle Paul where we're blind and struck down, so to speak, and then, you know, boom, instantly it's when the prayers are prayed over him, he, the scales are removed from his eyes and he sees and he can remember the exact day, the exact hour, the exact moment. And that happens for some of us. But many of us, it's like, and the fellow last week who shared his testimony with his struggle with drugs, and I asked, well, was there a certain moment? You know, I, 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 I grew up Baptist. There has to be a moment in time where you, you know, you remember the exact day or hour of the moment. And he said, and, he's, and he is Baptist, and he said, well, it didn't really work that way. It was just more gradual of coming into the light. And it's like, when did you realize that you were actually out of darkness and that it was light? Like, you know, when do you actually realize that it's no longer night and it's morning? You know, we know exactly when the sun comes up, but usually you're already seeing daylight a good while before that. And so that's what happens with, uh, often in people's stories of salvation. But what we see from the Pharisees, though, is just the opposite. And so I want you to consider, like, for they started with a certain presupposition. Their presupposition was, to them, the Sabbath was everything. The Sabbath was, their, their whole identity was based around the Sabbath, which was the fourth commandment, is the Sabbath. But then they added all of these oral traditions to the moral law, and now they're adding oral traditions to it and adding all these extra things to the Sabbath that weren't initially in God's Word. And so on the Pharisees' view of the Sabbath, as one commentator put it like this, a man cannot carry a handkerchief from an upstairs room, uh, room to downstairs. That would be carrying a burden, and carrying a burden was work. A man could neither lighten or extinguish a lamp, for that would be considered work. He couldn't cut his fingernails, nor pull the hair out of his beard. And most certainly, he could not make uh, dust into clay, for that would have been manual labor. And mud making was explicitly connected with, that would be Sabbath breaking, because what it was, was it would be the same as kneading of dough. And the, and you know, so, you know, Jesus had broken the law here by, you know, kneading dough or clutter, uh, clay or mud, and he's, he's making, uh, he's working on the Sabbath. And so they're so convinced, they're starting with that presupposition. It's interesting how the Gospels will show how, like, they're so committed to this. We are so committed to the Sabbath that we have to kill him before the sun goes down. Because otherwise, we'd be breaking the Sabbath. We've got to kill Jesus before the sun goes down because we are, we're serious people. Now, now, give glory to God, they're saying to him. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner, so give glory to God. Give glory to God. 
They're not giving any glory to God. They've already made up their mind, and yet it's all religious rigmarole to make themselves look better, and it's all about their own system, and yet they're going to crucify the Lord of glory, but they'll make sure they do it so they're not violating the Sabbath. And even when they're plotting to kill him, when are they doing that? On the Sabbath. And so Jesus, he breaks all these uh, social norms to show that he's the Lord of glory. And the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so be careful if your lawmaking is actually driving you further from God. Why are you trying to be obedient? So that God will bless you and like you more? So that people will think you're a good person and like you? The parents, they didn't want to have anything to do with this. The Pharisees become harder in their, in their dogged determination. And, and it, it's interesting that the terms, this man. So if you just follow that phrase throughout you know, this uh, discourse. This man in verse 16, they have, they have three things that they say about this man. First of all, the Pharisees say, this man is not from God for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Verse 24, they got a noon this man. This man, we know that this man is a sinner. And then uh, verse 29, at the end of 29, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And so they're becoming progressively hardened as the story goes. It starts with, he's not from God, then it progresses to know he's a sinner, so we don't know where he comes from. And of course, the blind man says, wait a minute, he uses this man back on them. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. <laughs> and so they said, very interestingly, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? I mean, it, what an interesting worldview. What are they communicating? They think we are better than you because you have a physical handicap. You must be a sinner. And the word utter is, the, is this word that means whole. W-H-O-L-E, not, not H. So you are, you are wholly defiled. <clears throat> you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? Now, what's interesting is we understand, you know, as we're kind of like looking at this from the, the whole of Scripture, we have this doctrine, we call it total depravity. And total depravity does not mean utter depravity, okay? Utter depravity means you're as bad as you could possibly be. That's not what people, it's not what we mean by total depravity at all. We could be worse if God gives us over to our sin and we become hardened in sin, and that happens in Romans 1 where people are spiraling down in their idolatry. But the idea here is of total depravity is that all of our faculties from head to toe are affected by sin. Our, our minds, our wills, our heart, the way that we think, our eyes, our hands, our feet. The Bible describes us as head to toe as being affected by sin so that no part of us is able to please God in and of ourselves. That's what we mean by total depravity. It would mean the same as what they meant when they said you were born in whole sin. Yes, that's correct. But they didn't think they were. We're good people. 
and you would teach us, and they cast him out. And so any type of doctrinal belief that, that you hold to, if it's making you better than, than other people, what's really behind that? Who's really getting the glory then in your salvation? Is it about you or is it about God? And they thought that they knew. And what, have you ever talked to people before where they, they just, you, you try to tell them something and they keep telling you, we know, we know, I know, I know, I know, we know, we know, we know, we got this, we know, we know. It's like the most annoying thing, isn't it? And yet, what are they doing to Jesus and to this blind man? We know, we know, we know. I mean, how does verse 24 say? We know this man's a sinner. We know. You know, we know that God spoke through Moses. We know, we know. What do they really know by the end of the chapter? Hardly anything. But they, we know, we know, we know. I mean, it reminds me of, I mean, there's, you know how these stories live long in your family? And there's a story about my brother that will often get told at family gatherings. And it was in the fifth grade right here in Gettysburg, Brown Station Elementary. His fifth grade teacher gave a prophetic pronouncement to the whole class the day before report cards came out that somebody in this class is getting two D's. I mean, that's quite a prophecy, isn't it not? I mean, to all those fifth graders sitting there, somebody's getting two D's. But my brother made a a declaration in front of the whole class, or on the school bus, coming home from school, that he said, one thing I know for sure, it ain't me. Well, the next day he got his report card, and lo and behold, he had the two D's. And so the, the aha irony was that he, you know, we know, I know it's not me. Whereas this man who was blind just said, one thing I know, though I was blind, and now I see. And he sees that, wait a minute. I mean, you look at the, the, the what you have is a logical syllogism going back and forth, okay? The Pharisees have a syllogism, so does the blind man. Just follow the logic. I'm getting this from William Hendrickson. This is not original, but he says this. Here's the the major premise that the Pharisees start with. All people who are from God keep the Sabbath. Minor premise, this man doesn't keep the, the Sabbath. Conclusion, this man's not from God. Blind man has a syllogism. He starts it in verse 32 and verse 33. Major premise, only people who are from God can open the eyes of those who are born blind. Minor premise, this man has opened the eyes of me, one who was born blind. Conclusion, this man is from God. The Pharisees then have a final logic. Major premise, verse 34, only the wicked suffer physical affliction. Minor premise, you suffer physical affliction. Conclusion, you are wicked out of here, and they kick him out. Well, that kind of begs for a syllogism for us this morning. Major premise. Jesus has pity and power to save this blind man from his physical blindness. Minor premise. Jesus has power and pity to save me from my spiritual blindness. Conclusion. Am I too blind to see my need for spiritual sight? Or do I think I'm just fine? We know. I know. But we're blind. 
Where are you this morning? You see, the reality is when you see these, the Pharisees and you see the blind man, there's no neutrality. You're either getting closer to the light or you're getting further from the light. You're either seeing that revelation, you're seeing his grace, you're seeing his glory, you're seeing his greatness, and you want it. And you're drawn to it. And you are, open the shade, let the light in. I want to walk in the light. I want to know this God. Or, I don't like that. Keep those shades closed. And we scurry and we run away and we harden our hearts and we become more hardened in pursuing our sin. You see, when Jesus says he is the light of the world, it is an indictment because the Bible is very clear that the the context is darkness. The devil is darkness. Hell is darkness. The world is darkness. We are darkness. We commit deeds of darkness. Our hearts are darkness. Our minds become darkened in understanding We're in the dark, apart from Jesus. So when Jesus comes and says he's the light of the world, you either love that or you hate that. There's there's not a neutrality to that. And that's what you're seeing in this chapter. The Pharisees want no parts of it. But the blind man worships. And so what we have in conclusion is Jesus finds this blind man, just as Jesus has been kicked out of the temple, and here Jesus finds him. And I would just say to you, if you find yourself someday kicked out of the religious establishment, maybe you're in good company. Martin Luther found himself outside of the Roman church and on trial. John Calvin had to flee France and then later was expelled from Geneva. Many of the Puritans were removed from their churches, separated from their congregations by the powers of the state. Jonathan Edwards was fired by his own church and then didn't have the money to move anywhere, so he's still in the the community of Northampton for many months till he can find work with the Indians, even though his own... and, And here's the interesting thing. They needed a preacher, so after they fired him, guess who was doing pulpit supply? Edwards was coming back doing pulpit supply. George Whitfield had to preach in the open fields for a reason. The Anglican church didn't want him. And sometimes we get kicked out and it really smarts and it hurts. And here this man's been thrown out, cast out, just as Jesus had to hide out of the temple. But Jesus, having found him, it's a wonderful Greek word, eureka. There's a eureka moment. It's Jesus finding his sheep. He, having found him, and he, and, and he reveals himself to him. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, it is I who is speaking to you, and he worships. Are you worshiping Jesus yourself? What we see from this text is this great principle of 1 Corinthians 2.14, that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him, nor is he able to understand because they are spiritually discerned. But the ones that Jesus is pleased to open the eyes, those who call upon his name, those who cry out, those who see their need, they're the people that say, ere since by faith I saw the stream, your flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. 
And so you don't have to be like the Pharisees saying, give glory to God, and they're really not giving any glory to God. Or you can be one who, like Jesus, is saying these are done that the works of God might be displayed, and we see his work being displayed, and we give all the glory to him. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see, and we give him the glory, not ourselves. Let's pray together. Lord, as we have the privilege now to commune with you and to fellowship with you, people whose eyes have been opened, who've been set free from sin, and yet we struggle with sin. Lord, renew us. Renew your covenant faithfulness to us. May we see how beautiful and wonderful your grace truly is. And we thank you, Lord, for coming in our darkness and bringing the light. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.